Okay, welcome to Defen, episode number 38, right? 38? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I think uh, we have uh, our young up-and-coming, that's what, uh, up-and-coming closure talent, all the way from France, Valentin, or I'm not going to pronounce your complete name, but <laughs> how, do, how do I say it, Valentin? You say Valentin, which is difficult oh, because... Sh- uh, those vowels don't exist in the English language. <laughs> and, uh, Va- Valentin. Yeah, yeah, good enough. Good enough. Valentin. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, think... the last name, uh, pronounce it however you want. It's like uh, <laughs> even, French <laughs> people, even French people do, don't do it right. So, you know. but that doesn't sound French though, your last name. No, it came what? from Holland, I guess. Holland? Comes, uh, oh. comes from, uh, I hear okay. it means uh, left shore. Something like that. Okay. Vessel link or Vessel Lynch. Yeah, we say Veslink in France. Veslink. But it's okay. not like, uh, it's probably not how you would pronounce it uh, in mm. the original language. Yeah. Vessel but anyway, so. The first yeah, Dutch would be Veslink. Yeah, yeah Veslink. Yeah, that sounds like a Dutch name though. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so let's uh, get started. Um, Valentin? Hmm, that's pretty good. <laughs> Congrats. Mm. Thank you. I can move to France now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about closure. I think this, uh, this sounds like one of those wet videos. Let's talk about JavaScript. And then he makes jokes about JavaScript. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, let's talk about closure. Uh, or maybe uh, just to give us a brief introduction about yourself. You know, what are you working on? What did you do so far? And what are you going to do? So, starting from yesterday, I'm <laughs> unemployed. I'm unemployed? Happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in the last uh, three years, I went... Hang on, stop, you, stop the interview here. You know, we don't want to interview unemployed. <laughs> I mean, good Lord, you know, this guy, you know. Who asked him to come on? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, go on, sorry, I'm joking. So, yeah... Uh, I've been uh, in the last uh, three years. I, uh, I was in a in a small startup in uh, Paris. We did, which did uh, called Ben Square, which does um, uh, a survey platform essentially to to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps uh, event organizers to gain more insights and knowledge uh, and leverage uh, from their audiences. And uh, so I've been doing that. And uh, about a year and a half ago, that company got acquired to one of the um, uh, ticketing e-commerce actors in uh, France. Mm-hmm. And um, and then uh, after a year and a half, I decided to quit because I wanted to no longer be employed full time and to spend more time doing uh, re- studying stuff that I'm interested in and making open source uh, stuff and uh, climbing mountains and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have this standard theme enclosure thing, right? The people who get into closure, they, they slowly retreat to mountains. They're like, oh, fuck this thing. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we're done. So somehow closure has that effect on the yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. There's a <laughs> 2,000 meters high mountain next to my home and uh, <laughs> I, I put a hammock on top of it a <laughs> <here>. <laughs> and I go there to, <laughs> to meditate. Yeah. So you're going to spend some time in the hammock and then after six months or so you come with your own version of uh, closure. 
yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I have that potential, uh, that kind of potential. <laughs> ah, you never so know. I, I'm pretty happy with Clojure. Like, it's not like uh, I'm not in a position <laughs> where I'm like, uh, oh man, uh, all these languages I'm using, they, they suck. I need to make some, do something else. <laughs> <or not. laughs> you'll get there. You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> Well, actually, the nice thing about I think the nice thing about you is that you are actually using the languages, and I think like uh, Buzidar is more of a kind of like uh, like who was on last week and was a bit more negative. I think he's like a like you know a well, bit, a I'm, bit. I use something else, you know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just like to chat about closure now and again and help the developers. He does good stuff, but but I think he's like not doing it every day like you are. You know, and like like we are, I guess. So, what stack did you use anyway? There. Sorry. What what stack did you use in the? So in uh, the startup, in the we started with uh, a pretty common stack for startups at the time, which was uh, Angular JS and Node.js and MongoDB. And uh, when we pivoted essentially to a more um, to more data-centered uh, focus, uh, it no longer worked, and then we decided to move uh, uh, to Clojure and Datomic, and uh, mm -hmm. we kept we kept the front end in uh, in Angular JS, and it it's been no major or most important source of pain since. But uh, <laughs> it was like uh, it would if if we'd. If we tried to migrate that at the same time, we would have uh, we would have beaten on more than we can chew. Really. So, uh, mm -hmm. so yeah, that was uh, the right thing to do. Was that something that you uh, you motivated uh, Valentin, or is that something that other people you got as a group, or how did you make that that transition, that choice? Because it's if you're in a startup, um, it's not always the most obvious thing to do is to go with the closure datomic stack. So. What was your process to get there? It was uh, pretty difficult. It was pretty difficult because uh, the French software culture is very conservative, mm -hmm. and uh, it's really like uh, like in the the software ecosystem in in Paris, it's like uh, PHP Java. and Java are like very yeah. very dominant, and you see uh, some C sharp uh, here and there, and uh, and like. And, when you're using something like uh, Python or Ruby, you're considered really bold. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. uh, and uh, yeah, I had some uh, experience with Clojure from uh, from a few school projects, and mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I hadn't uh, dared use it uh, in a startup uh, for the startup uh, when uh, when we started it, and uh, and I have. Uh, as we as we encountered difficulties, it was like uh, I was. It was mostly related to the database to MongoDB, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, when your app grows uh, larger and more sophisticated, you essentially and you're using MongoDB, you're essentially um, reinventing a crappy ad hoc uh, relational engine on the on the client side, essentially. So it's like uh, it really hurt us uh, a lot. And uh, so I was curious about Datomic because, of course, I knew Clojure. I was curious about what uh, Richiki was, uh, what Richiki's opinions were on the database front. 
And just to uh, go back I, a second there, Val, because you know you, you were saying that you were doing this, like you're inventing the relational database at the front. Is that because what you're saying is that you you take like a doc a set of documents from Mongo and then you do the merging and you do the joining in the client? Is that is that the kind yeah. of thing that you're well, talking by, about? Well, by client I mean database client, so yeah, that's sure, what sure. you usually yeah. call a, a, the the server yeah. side, the backend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's like uh, we had more and more queries which involved uh, many different entities, and the entity mm. graph started like to the schema started to be really uh, large, have a lot of diameter, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. And essentially, I found myself like making joins by hand over a network. It was like mm. uh, it yeah, was bad. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't scale at all. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, uh, yeah, so so uh, um, during so I took some uh, holidays in the summer and I gave Datomic a try, and I was really uh, it really blew my mind, like maybe more so than Clojure did when I learned it, and mm. um, and so um, a few months later uh, when we we really couldn't go on, I was like, okay, we should probably move. Up. I think we would make a very like moving to Clojure and Datomic would solve most of our technical problems. Mm. And uh, it doesn't, like, I was willing, I did consider other stacks, I mean, like SQL and uh, using languages like Python and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, when I met the pros and cons of each alternative, it's like Clojure and Datomic always won because they really solved the hard problems. Like, they, they did leave some problems, but those were easy problems. So, that's why we, we chose that. And it was difficult. It was like uh, convincing my, my partner, who was the CEO of the company, that to move to such a non-mainstream stack was, uh, was really difficult. And what we did is like we, we discussed it and we, we um, asked for counsel from a few, few other people, like other CTOs, stuff like that. And we... We, we had on the phone maybe three CTOs from French startups and see three, two or three people from the Clojure world to discuss mm. the, the merits of that. And uh, eventually, mm. she was convinced. And uh, so we moved to, to Clojure and Datomic, and we did the, the big rewrite of the, the backend of our, of our system, mm -hmm. and, uh, which was exhausting. It was like, uh, it took me four weeks, maybe. Uh, where I, I got like... Uh, at some point, uh, I hurt my arms. I typed so much in a day; I, it was like uh, it was a sport almost. <laughs> and, uh, it was four and, uh, weeks. Yeah, yeah. We the system when we migrated it, it was maybe twelve thousand lines of JavaScript code, untested okay. JavaScript code, which really doesn't help. And okay. uh, I eventually it became. Uh, uh, 9,000 lines of Clojure and Datomic, okay. basically. I mean, it's, it's a different definition of uh, exhausting because I've been part of some migration projects that were like going from Oracle J Head Start to JBoss uh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a different kind of weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I don't know, it's like going from one, uh, yeah, I don't know, pan to the fire or something like that so mm. that was even worse <laughs> going for two and a half years and <laughs> with 20 different teams and all the crap what, anyway what was the uh, what was the the cutover process like valentine because um 
The when you the, the transition process from the old stack to the new stack, how did you achieve the um, the actual transition in production? So since I was the only backend developer at the time, what we said basically is uh, no more no more features for a month. Like we, right. I, I will fix bugs, but I, I want uh, we we can't evolve the the system. We have to leave it as mm. it is until the migration is complete. Mm. And uh, technically, what I did is what I, I really put a lot of emphasis on uh, testing, uh, which fortunately is really easy to do with uh, Datomic and Clojure. Mm. And um, but so it was weird because the the former system was not tested, and uh, <laughs> and like if it, like migrating. Uh, it, it's not about the number of lines of code. I think it's really about the number of tests, like uh, how well tested is it, or well, how do you really understand how it works in detail? And especially mm -hmm. because I, I hadn't written all of its code, like a lot of it was written mm -hmm. by uh, some uh, freelance that uh, we hired, we had hired a few months ago. So like uh, I was like discovering all sorts of uh, edge cases mm -hmm. and, uh, and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, basically it's like. Uh, one feature at a time, I migrated the system, I tested it, and uh, at some point, we, we switched the backend. Uh, so was there an API kind of exposed to the Angular yeah, front end, so, or was it a bit less, more like uh, informal than that? No, it was really uh, an API. It was like uh, a single page app on the front end and uh, right. an API on the back end, and uh, so we did it that way. And uh, one of the things that were really very useful, I think, uh, with Datomic is that uh, with Datomic, because you have the, um, you can do something with Datomic that you can do on other databases that you can, uh, you can uh, hold it, uh, you can uh, have it in memory, and uh, yeah. you can fork it. And forking means like essentially ma making a, a clone, uh, a copy with uh, zero cost, and um, and when you have that, it becomes very easy to do system level testing. And uh, mm. so basically, we the way we wrote test was like uh, we tested each API endpoint, and it it like it enables you to write tests that uh, that have a lot of coverage that like that cover a lot of cases because uh, it's like uh, it's a, it covers a huge code path essentially. So um, so yeah, that was pretty useful. Well, like. Uh, Okay, I really I just need to understand how the API works, and then I test for that. And when the test pass, I'm done basically. Hmm. But what did you find interesting in 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 Datomic? Because it might be it might be uh, it might have been a uh, difficult part of the migration as well, right? Because the the way the code has been written might be different, and especially if you're coming from uh, MongoDB, and then suddenly it's non-relational. Uh, of course, um, Datomic is kind of non-relational as well. It's not completely uh, mm. different system. But how did you do that then? Well, it it went okay because mm -hmm. a lot of the the queries that we did uh, in MongoDB was like fetching documents and then fetching yeah. related documents or parts of related yeah. documents. And the difficulty was that you have to do that over a network, basically, like uh, you have to do yeah. the joins manually, and with mm. Datomic, you don't have that problem. Where, like we we used the, the 
entity API of Datomic a lot, which gives you mm -hmm. a sort of um, um, a map-like view of your database. Like uh, mm -hmm. it gives you a view, a map-like view of your database centered uh, around I don't know order fifty-six or customer ninety-five stuff like that. Yeah. And so basically, uh, we basically took the same algorithms, but we didn't have to do uh, all sorts of crappy uh, workarounds to to make that efficient, you know, efficient yeah. and consistent and stuff like that. Because uh, with Datomic, that was uh, natural; and, uh, you had nowhere to. Do. So, so it mostly okay. went fine. Really. So, when, when you were just, I was going to say when you just oh, sorry, please, BJ, you go. But in the front end, you didn't use data script or anything, right? Because you were still using AngularJS as the front end. Uh, yeah, I was using AngularJS, but actually, as a fun anecdote, we did use data script at some point because um, we had some analytical stuff to do, which were basically queries that had lots of joints if you do it in SQL. And yeah. so it became so, like, each time you have a new query to make, it was so much work to gather the data that basically at some point we decided to do something very ugly. We did uh, like uh, yeah. we loaded all of it in the in browser data script database, like thousands of entities and stuff like that, <laughs> and and we wrote okay. the queries in data script, and that was ugly as hell, and it was slow, <laughs> and it, it was a catastrophe, really. And, uh, okay. and all the pain went away, actually, when, when we started uh, using the Clojure and Datomic. But yeah, yeah, we were using that, but we weren't doing a very advanced uh, data sync, like uh, data, Datomic to data script, uh, yeah. data synchronization, yeah, like you see in some projects. Yeah. And we, we okay. still don't. We still don't, and okay. we, we no longer use the data script on the so, question about the um, you were talking about reinventing the relational things. So, what was the what? How did you find the 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 process of migrating like the document schema? Because you know people say it's like Mongo schemaless, but really documents form a kind of schema. So you know you have documents with embedded documents, and documents have relationships to each other. So how did you model that? In, in did you start from scratch with Datomic, or was it a fairly straightforward one-to-one -one transfer? Or how did how did you do the um, the, the data? We in, we in did Datomic? it manually, but it was uh, it was straightforward really. Like uh, the the thing with Datomic essentially is that uh, when you store data. You have to make a choice of schema, but you don't need to anticipate a lot of things. You don't need to anticipate mm. how you're going to query it and stuff like that. You, you mostly don't because uh, the query language, uh, the, the schema is flexible enough and the query language is uh, expressive enough that you don't have to care about the stuff. Yeah. So, so you just made the entities pretty much what the documents were in the past, and then you just, yeah, then you just yeah, run the queries like as you wish. Yeah, yeah. It, okay. it was, it was uh, straightforward. Yeah. Although yeah, nice. uh, what was not straightforward, and that's uh, somewhat of an issue with Datomic, especially at the time, is that like uh, with MongoDB, we had some uh, ORM, although it's not relational, we had some library that enabled yeah. us to uh, encode the schema and to declare it. And there's no agreed upon way to do that in Datomic. I mean, uh, in Datomic, like you declare the schema with uh, some uh, transactions, so it, mm -hmm. you can write it in uh, even form. 
mm-hmm. but it's very verbose and it doesn't necessarily declare everything that you want to declare about your data mm-hmm. and uh, like uh, what invariants it has and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had to make choices uh, about that and we, these things evolved. Uh, now, now the way we do it is we, we, uh, we represent our schema our data schema in an abstract way in a data script database that acts like a bit as a, a UML diagram, essentially encoding data. And then we derive the data mix schema automatically from that. But at the time we started, we didn't do that at all, mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. more manual stuff. And did, do you use any of the, one of the things that I found funky with Datomic was the component entities. I like some of the aspects of component entities and, uh, you know, the, the automatic sort of management and mm-hmm. the fact that you can, if you delete a, a, compo- a top component, then the underlying entities also get cleared up. Mm-hmm. But um, but I felt like some of the functions, some of the access functions around component entities were a little bit weaker. So I don't know if you used any of that tech or... Yeah, we use, uh, in a few cases, we use uh, component attributes, but it's... Uh... Yeah, it's small. It's like more the exception than the rule. Really. Yeah. I think we do it to encode some data structures in Datomic that are not natural to to encode by default. But uh, we mon- mostly don't do that. Most of our entities, I th- I think, like the rule for component attributes, like uh, you should not be able to access that entity without going through the parent entity, essentially. But we, we haven't had that use case all that much. So how, how did you run the Datomic thing? Because is it a, is it a hosted uh, version or is it uh, something that you are hosting with Postgres in the back end? So, or is it the DynamoDB thing? Yes, it's a DynamoDB. We, we took the approach of like, uh, hmm. doing the standard uh, default hosting on AWS because like, uh, I'm not much of an operations guide. So, so hmm. like, uh, I was like... Uh, was quite happy mm. that there was a good default for AWS. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you use the templates from Datomic, or did you just do you roll, roll your own things? No, I, I used just... the the CloudFormation templates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been fine. Okay. But, um, I find it to be uh, maybe a bit expensive when you when you're starting. Like I mean, uh, but you know, as soon as you hiring another developer, that becomes a uh, an insignificant cost, like yeah. Uh, it's, uh, but it is free for first year, right, or something like that. Uh, the license, like, yeah. I was just yeah. uh, talking about the the cost in uh, infrastructure resources. Oh yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, of course. Machines yeah. to run and stuff like that, and DynamoDB yeah. can be somewhat costly. But yeah. on the other hand, like we didn't have that much write volume, and the mm. read volume, like everything got. Uh, most queries uh, hit the peer cache, so really uh, we, mm. we could tune our DynamoDB capacity pretty low. Didn't, mm. didn't you do most of your development with the, just the starter kit in, in memory, or how did that, because that, that's how I would have thought you did it, rather than uh, actually being connected to DynamoDB all the time? Well, you, you do need to, uh, I mean, uh, in production, you do need to have uh, some oh, yeah, durability, yeah. so yeah. yeah. Uh, in development, yeah. Uh, well, we in development we do two things. We do either um, what we call the the lab environment, which is uh, uh, artificial data that we use also for example based tests, hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it's like uh, yeah, really uh, examples that we write in code, and uh, 
it gets loaded in an uh, in-memory datomic instance. And the other thing we do a lot is to make an in-more uh, local fork of our production database. Right, and uh, course, that's yeah. something that's pretty unique to Datomic, as far as I know. Mm, yeah. And uh, like often, when we need to debug something, uh, we're like, uh, OK, uh, I see where this is a uh, bugging position. So I just fork the, the production database and, uh, and work uh, on that uh, on my laptop, like on my local machine. I think uh, the people at Heroku um, have their Postgres um, instance that can do forks, that you can fork yeah. the database. But that's again, that's a very unusual um, situation, and it's not as painless or as sweet or as easy as as Datomic. It's so, some sort of magic on top of Postgres. Yeah, I, I guess I guess it it must have some cost. I guess like it's like you have to, to oh, copy yeah. a lot of stuff basically. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah in, sure. in Datomic, it's like uh, just a pointer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Almost. that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's like you you take your database value. And mm. so a reference to database value, you put that in a in an uh, item and you're done basically. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But if you want to create a fork of the database or a copy of the database like Heroku does, then obviously you need to copy it at the DynamoDB level as well, right? You know, you need to have the whole yeah. no, you don't. stack yeah. copy anyway. No, but I think to do the Heroku thing you do. Ah yes, yeah, you yeah, do yeah, the Heroku yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 sure. Because in the end, you know, you need to copy the shit on on the disks from one yeah. place to the other. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, that yeah. needs to happen anyway. Yeah, they haven't got that. They haven't got that. Uh, the temporal sort of nature that uh, yeah. the atomic yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, going back to the closure part of it. So uh, how how did you start with closure? Because this is usually not the first language for most of the people, right? So what what was the history behind it? So it's a long story. Um, We've, I got started, a, we've, that, got a, we've got a few minutes. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I started programming 13 years ago when I was 14. And mm. uh, I and thought you I, were going to say seven then, but you know. <laughs> 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 no, I'm a bit older than that. Okay. But um, it was uh, so I started when I was 14 learning Java. Uh, my oh my father God. bought me a Java book. And uh, it was my first for, language. For Christmas. Yeah. No, but you know, like uh, Java will always have a, a special fun place in my heart because it was my first language and uh, yeah. that's it. Like, uh, I'm yeah. not objective about it. Uh, although I, I no longer use, I no longer consider it a pragmatic choice uh, for most of my project. But uh, um I uh, so I was really fond of Java, and I really didn't want to hear about anything else for years and years, uh, until I had to do uh, some front-end development because uh, some of my projects uh, mandated it. And uh, at that point, two things sort of happened. One was what one was that I really felt I had some good mastery of Java, but it was like it felt like uh, running underwater. Basically, it was like mm. uh, uh, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew the steps I had, would have to take to to go there, like make this class and this stuff and stuff like that. And uh, but it was too long. Like uh, I had to admit that I wasn't as fast as I wanted to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like uh, yeah, running out of yeah. water. For, for for the listeners <laughs> who are going to listen to this podcast, Ray is making his impression of running underwater. <laughs> Or something Swimming, like that, but, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I can't put my feet on the table. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. And uh, the other thing, 
the other thing I discovered. I, I love that. I love that simile, by the way. I think running underwater is a really nice way of putting it. You know. Yeah. Is is that a Frenchism yeah. or something? I haven't heard it no, in English. But, but no, I, I, not really. Is that that? Okay. Uh, just a so, Valentine. It was thing, so yeah. painful that no. I had time to to come up with it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it. Uh, <laughs> um, you, you, you just took thirteen years to come up with this uh, <laughs> this way of expressing how to work with Java. That's yeah, a really nice. Really nice one. <laughs> so, so I started looking for alternatives, and uh, I looked at Groovy, and I threw up a little. Oh. And I looked at Scala, and uh, I, I was really, threw up a lot. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I was really enthusiastic about uh, about Scala at first, but I became somewhat disillusioned at some point because uh, um, I, it felt like it didn't solve Java's problems. It just Push the the limitations a little further away, but uh, but not that that uh, far away. And it's yeah. a bit like you know you're going from a, a balloon to a zeppelin, basically. Like and and it's like uh, <laughs> it's got good okay. ones. It's got good ones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, whereas I I have I had heard about Clojure before, but I, I dismissed it at first. It was like this alien thing, and it was not popular. And at the time, I still had the the naive notion that because something was not mainstream, not popular, it means that it was worse. It was not, not as good. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is yeah. not the case at all, actually. But I think uh, many people entertain this notion, and I, and I did. <laughs> and um, at the same time, I had a, re a revelation with uh, JavaScript because uh, I had to learn JavaScript. Although I, I really, I was really reluctant to do it because, uh, from my very dogmatic Java-esque point of view, it was really a disgusting language. And uh, and then be be I, you mean because of like the prototype inheritance rather than the class inheritance? Um, because and, uh, oh, because incorrectness of equality. Yeah, because kind of no stuff. classes, no type system, stuff like that. No, no, and none of the ceremony that I I like at the time I believed that ceremony ceremony was a good thing, like uh, hmm. you know design patterns, stuff like that. Uh, okay. And. Um, but I had a revelation. I, I learned it through uh, Douglas uh, Crockford's uh, book and videos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it's really called uh, JavaScript, the good part, and it's very good. Yeah. And uh, I had, uh, like, uh, I was it's a very small book, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so videos, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's also, yeah, it's uh, small, but like, it's a bit like Scheme, I guess. It's uh, There's a co-minimal language in JavaScript that's very efficient, very effective way of programming. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's and like I was initiated to, you know, first-class functions and uh, data-oriented programming and data literals and uh, and everything being reified you know, at runtime. Yeah. The thing and, I remember uh, reading when I read that book was the fact that really the only thing that he really explained, and I think he explained it really well, was the notion of how to write a closure in JavaScript. Yeah. And that was at the heart of the book. You know, and yeah. if you could write everything as a closure in JavaScript, then basically you were golden, because then you had all the protection that you needed inside of that closure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I was really impressed and changed my view of programming. And then uh, Scala started making even less sense. Than, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then I saw uh, Simple Made Easy by Richie and mm. I was really blown away. I was like, wow, this guy is much more lucid about programming than most of the 
people and technologies and stuff that I've encountered. So I want to use what he's making. And, uh, and so I tried Clojure and I was like, I did a small data science project, uh, well, more data analysis, I guess, uh, project with it. And I, I was blown away. I was like, man, I'm already done. Like, uh, it's been, uh, <laughs> that's it. Like, uh, it, it was very fast. And uh, I discovered the, the REPL at that time. And uh, it really changed the way I view programming. And I, I missed it. When I do in other languages, I've missed it uh, ever since. Like, uh, Hmm. Having the the repl and stuff like that, and you know, I, I wasn't, I guess, like I was much less productive in Clojure at that time that I, I am now. But uh, but uh, in two or three weeks of learning Clojure, I was already more productive than in Java for this sort of, of stuff. Hmm. And I'd been doing Java for eight years before that, so you know, <laughs> it's hmm. like. Uh, and yeah. I, I know maybe maybe also that maybe I, my brain I evolved to a point where it was ready for Clojure and like my brain is set up in a way that uh, that uh, that it works well with Clojure. What happened with your? What happened with the? Because you were saying before that like you're really keen on on like the the types and all that kind of stuff. What and then the JavaScript thing changed a bit and is, was, it, was it JavaScript that got you a bit more relaxed about the fact that dynamic languages were, were okay or was it closure that brought that revelation? Um, no, closure put words on, on what was wrong, but I was already feeling something was wrong in the way mm. I was doing Java because and like, I, it feels, I, I think like doing Java in the idiomatic way is not the same thing as doing Java in the pragmatic way. Like in Java, you you want to make elegant class hierarchies and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, at some point, I, no I noticed that I was waiting a lot of time because of that. Like because uh, my systems were inflexible, and they were. Um, I spent a lot of time doing some pointless design about how my classes would be composed with each other and stuff like mm. that. Mm. And um, and JavaScript showed that it was not necessary that you could just have uh, functions and compose them and uh, and it worked better essentially. Mm. And and Scala it showed me like with Scala I thought okay it's going to I first thought it's going to solve my problems with that because you know you have more power you know you have like uh, implicits and you have like uh, you can uh, do classes, some concrete deep behaviors like in in traits and stuff like mm. that. And you have a more powerful uh, system of generics and stuff like that, and uh, like it didn't help in the end. I was doing even more of these pointless uh, decisions than I was in Java. So, yeah, you know. So, how do you feel? How do you feel about the closure community? You know that because it's a as you, as you said, you know, initially you were thinking you know popular languages with bigger communities are are a bit different. Uh, so. Because you've been writing Clojure for, I don't know how many years now, probably uh, five, six years already? Yeah, five, maybe, something yeah. like that. Um, I think the, the community is one of the unsung uh, strengths of Clojure for when you want to, to do some pragmatic development uh, with it because um, like, you have access to a lot of very bright and very helpful and very nice people. And like, I wouldn't mm. know how to do that, to access this in Java or, or JavaScript, but because everyone is so enthusiastic about the language and mm. 
it's like uh, it's like uh, some kind of private club. Uh, I don't know, like uh, <laughs> maybe maybe it's a cult. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> it is a cult. Yeah, we all have to no, kill I, our, We all have to kill ourselves soon. Well, yeah, no, I don't think so because I I think I, I've become more lucid about software development since I've been using I started using Clojure. And usually, mm. the the point of a cult is to make you less lucid about rela- reality <laughs> and to like to to narrow your views. You know, uh, and, uh, maybe maybe you're missing out on all the design patterns, man. I think you're <laughs> yeah, right, maybe, though, Valentin. Yeah. I think maybe it's the other way around. Is that sometimes you realize actually Java and OO is a bit of a cult. In fact, you know, I don't yeah. want to be too negative on that, but I felt a bit like that. I felt like well. All this stuff that I've been told for ten years, and I kind of, kind of sunk a lot of my time into as well. It's just junk, you know. I don't need it, and we can definitely do well without it. Um, and so, do objects ever have a place? I miss probably somewhere, but um, you know, I think it's it's generally not that important and not that uh, interesting for most software projects. Um, and I feel like somehow. We as a as an industry have got hoodwinked into that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, and I, I think like I think uh, the appeal of classes to to businesses and the reason why it became so popular is because it feels like you can enforce best best practices by making class hierarchies, basically, like uh, and design patterns and and stuff like that. It, you can feel it, like you know what you're doing. Yeah, and, and also <laughs> there is ceremony, but the ceremony it's like when you're doing it, you get uh, you get attached to it, and uh, it makes you feel like you're doing something good. It's like okay, I, I just wrote a private static void be- before that stuff, and although it's not minimally required to write uh, the that co- that program, uh, I took the time to do that, and so. Like it feels like you're following best practices, you know, and, mm. and there's a lot of that I think in uh, in Java, and uh, again I, I'm really fond of Java, but uh, um, I know that I was biased and in this way, and uh, and I was really narrow-minded is in this way. I was like uh, I, I had like many programmers. I, I read like uh, the design patterns book by Gang on Four. And after that, I had my honeymoon period with uh, design patterns where I was <laughs> like, uh, okay, I have this problem to solve. And um, I was like, okay, I'm going to use this pattern and this pattern and this pattern and stuff like that. And it didn't yield better designs, actually, because design patterns are good as an inspiration, but not as a guiding principle. And uh, Did you ever read the, um, the Effective Java book by uh, Josh Block? Oh, yeah, and I love that one. And I still do. I still like it. It's really, really good. Yeah, he had a lot of nice things. Basically, he was telling us about immutable data. That that was yeah. That was yeah. that book was where oh yeah, actually final final is good. You know, yeah. I can just <laughs> I can just do final strings, and I don't need all these getters and setters. I can just pff, construct an object and make it into yeah. a map and have yeah. So that was a nice book actually. I think Richie said that one at some point, right? Because the 
if you introduce all this kind of things into the into the program suddenly you start to feel clever because or or you feel this some sort of satisfaction that yeah. you build this complex system yeah. with uh, all these uh, class hierarchies and all that stuff and yeah, yeah. i you know I, i have a pat on you know um, i'm going to pat myself on my back because you know i made a program with 2000 classes that extend 17 different interfaces but you know it's so clean you know that's kind of bullshit Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that yeah. Well, I think maybe, maybe I think, his, uh, uh, I think people do manage to to get that right but uh like um you know I don't know if you you you've seen the Lord of the Rings like uh, at some point they they have to um to 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 go through like the the marriage of the dead or stuff like that like this 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 swamp in front of others and like uh, like gollum tells that don't follow the lights don't follow the lights yes. and i yes. think <laughs> working in class based languages is like that it's like you want to follow the lights you want to make the classes and all but you must not follow the lights or you yeah. you will end up in a in a pool with a dead guy clinging onto you and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and in this case dead code you mean right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yes yeah. the, 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 object, the code that the object model is kind of dragging it yeah yes, exactly, dragging exactly. It. Like, don't follow yeah. lights like don't i know yeah. it's tempting but you have yeah. to to make the unelegant <laughs> thing yeah, at least yeah, when yeah. you're running underwater you can actually reach up and go at the surface but when yeah. <laughs> otherwise you have a dead weight yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, I remember some things I wrote. Like I'm ashamed of it. Like, like I was, I had some piece of data to exchange from one point to another. I was like, okay, I'm going to make an interface for representing the shape of the data, and then I'm going to make an implementation of that, and then I'm going to make a builder for that, and then a factory for that. Yeah. Builder. Oh yeah. <laughs> Those like, builders. Awesome. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. Like uh, yeah. I felt good. It was like it was not especially readable. It was inflexible as hell, and it was a, a huge waste of time. Yeah, but also the thing is that at, yeah. at at that time, I think you know um, the reason why practically everybody started believing it is that it was very convincing because you could you know model the real world with with objects. That was the whole idea, right? I mean that. Yeah. that that seemed reasonable and then you get this all this fucking example with shapes and cars and lights and whatever the what not and yeah yeah you know yeah. bruce ekel and other people telling that hey this is how uh, you know real world is and you can model them if there is a bulb and then you can model a bulb and then yeah. it has a switch and then that's a method and then oh it makes sense because there is some sort of a simile i think for me uh, similarity but i think for me the the one of the things that that blew my mind away was the article uh, ran by Steve Yug or Steve Yug yeah uh, the kingdom uh, execution of the kingdom of yeah nouns. kingdom of yeah. nouns yeah i was like fuck yeah this is this is weird yeah right? what so so far i i've been so much thinking about nouns and then you forget about execution completely and executions are the are the key driver in functional programming languages yeah. like writing code that is actually doing something instead of thinking just in terms of nouns So how many how many Java programmers does it take to code a light bulb then? I think you need a factory first. <laughs> you need an abstract I don't know abstract builder factory abstract programmer light bulb factory. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that that implement that implements I don't know whatever light bulb in- interface. Enterprise anyway, light bulbable. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. Bulbable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And one one perspective I heard uh, and I heard it from uh, Eric Norman. Is also yeah. in the the Clojure community, and uh, 
and he said like uh, the one of the appeal of class-based programming is uh, that you can write your code as English. It's like when you want to design your program, you figure out the nouns and then you yeah. figure out the verbs and then the complement or after stuff like that. And you put these respectively in classes, methods, and arguments, and uh, and you're mm -hmm. done. And it's very intuitive to program that way. It's like you have no exactly. re, re, no decisions to make. The problem is that it yields by designs by default. And I think that mm -hmm. good OO programmers are those that learn to not do that. To, to like, <laughs> uh, okay, uh, no, that, that's not how I, I have to, to do it. And, uh, and I think that's where this similarity to reality comes from. But you see it breaking, like, for example, with ORMs, like with ORMs, like you, okay, you express the code in your language in English, but you fail to acknowledge the distributed systems reality and uh, yeah. and the way that your data is uh, is shaped and uh, stuff like that. And uh, and so yeah, mm. it's not really the real world. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where this this familiarity towards object-orientedness comes from. Maybe this is also from the history as well. I think before we started recording, yeah. we're talking about familiarity of the syntax as well, right? I mean, yeah. but that has a reasonable explanation that most of us, or maybe most of the programmers, start from C-based languages or yeah. you know all goal-based languages. Mm. So suddenly switching into something that is, you know, not familiar, then then that feels weird, and then that feels wrong. I think that familiarity is is conflated with being right. Isn't it also though? Isn't it also that object oriented, like hierarchies or like examples, they do they, they do demo quite well. They talk, you know, you can talk through them quite well. Um, but the problem is when you get into like a more complex business domain, um, mm. you know, you you can think, oh right, okay, now I, I've got this sort of set of hierarchies, these set of entities. Um, and you know you think through your use cases and you work it all out and it's all good. But then there becomes this tension between something like you know the the client or the reporting side or other side. And, and then you're you're one of the reasons people like relational databases is because you're not stuck really too much with the schema. You know you can express queries and join things ad hoc. You can't do that with objects anymore. You know because you're mm. you're kind of stuck in this in this world where if you want to implement some things differently, well, you need to refactor the whole class. So you need to refactor the whole hierarchy. So the flexibility, the changeability, the, you know, your ability to, you know, you basically made a big bet right up front about whether you're right or wrong. Yeah, that's and, true. You know, yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's something that we're not very, collectively, we're not very lucid about that. And uh, yeah, it, it's totally that. I mean, it's like... Um, Object-oriented, the, the class-based approach feels right until you have, well, basically you design your, with the class-based approach, you design your system like statically, like you design for one point in time in the evolution mm. of your code mm. base. Mm. But actually most of the design decisions that we have to make when we design software is about how things are going to evolve. And like uh, you, you're making assumptions and you're saying, okay, um, how fragile is that assumption? How fragile is that assumption? And you make your design decisions based on that. Like you made inflection points and flexibility based on that, and that's good design. But uh, but that's not natural for us at all because what's natural for us is like a fixed design and like uh, like uh, we 
we were not well equipped to think about change in design. I, yeah. I think we like to feel. I, 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 this is a, this is maybe just a, an anecdote, let's say. But I think that people like to feel like they know what they're doing, and yeah. if 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 you have these object oriented classes and you can show a type system, you can show this kind of, you know, you can show it all works. Yeah, I've got this class here and that class there. I can explain myself through these types. Then it sort of makes you think like you know what you're doing. Um, yeah. But as you say, Valentin, you know, yeah, really, yeah. you, you kind of don't because you're not accepting that there will be changes. You know, you're trying to say, well, I've got a bigger vision in my types and I will be able to make changes and it will be able to accommodate changes. But you don't know what's coming. So inevitably, you're kind of, you, you really know that you're going to be wrong, but you're not accepting that. That's how I feel when people explain that to me now. And I've been on either mm. side. I've definitely made class hierarchies <laughs> and I've been very proud of them and thought they were fucking brilliant and you know, aren't, I, aren't I clever, you know? But <laughs> then I got bitten in the ass by reality. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to, so, back to you. Uh, <laughs> yes. So let's talk about the REPL stuff. Um, yeah. So. So you, uh, I think one of the you know very nice contributions that you made was the REPL guide. So can you can you talk about uh, you know your experience with REPL and why REPLs are awesome? Um, I wrote about that a, a bit. Like, well, as I said from the very beginning, the the first thing I loved with Clojure was like the hmm. the the REPL, the yeah. interactive experience. I felt it was really a game changer in the way I program. Um, and uh, and so as I wrote more and more closure, I was always thinking about that. And as in the time I was not writing closure, I was writing other languages. I was always missing it. And um, and so uh, I spent some time uh, thinking about it, and uh, wrote a first article about that. And uh, and then uh, I hired a programmer for my company, and I had to teach him the, how to use the repl. And I think that's one of the hard things for onboarding people on the Clojure project when mm -hmm. they don't know Clojure, is that they're used to doing things very differently. Like I could see him struggle like debugging stuff and learning stuff. And I was like, man, you should be using the repl for that. It's like mm -hmm. uh, yes. you're, you're wasting your potential tremendously. It's like <laughs> uh, you're... And, uh, and so it reminded me of how uh, strange it was in the beginning. At that point, I was like, okay, uh, if I'm having this problem, I must not be the only project like having this problem. So, uh, so I said, okay, I'm just going to, to just uh, gather all the techniques I know about the REPL and try to organize them into a guide. And yeah, it took some time. It took some time. It's like, uh, like I spent maybe... Uh, several weeks like uh, on holiday in the subway in Paris and stuff like that uh, <laughs> writing stuff on my notebook but uh, oh there's this thing and this thing and I, I learned I learned quite many things in the process too because I, I was like okay uh, well it helped me get my ideas straight about why it worked and, mm. and that really helps and the other thing it was like uh, I had to survey like all the REPL tools and tool chains that exist and stuff like that and uh, mm. and I learned a lot of things when doing that. Mm. There's a lot of stuff. But I I completely agree with you because every time I t I tell a new person about REPL, it sounds like you know 
oh this is a completely different way of doing things and it sounds like i'm you know i'm like a snake oil salesman or something yeah, you know yeah, yeah. like it, it it's so difficult to express because if you read a book you can't get it it's not yeah. possible okay you see some static things floating around this this experience so is, is so difficult to convey yeah it's it's really live it's really live like it's just like yeah. you can describe uh, i don't know music in in a book like it's uh, yeah exactly it's it's so difficult to uh, yeah. uh, tell people and uh, you know writing 10 uh, times saying the same thing suddenly makes people more skeptical they're like okay this sounds like bullshit Yeah. So that's that's the yeah, that's yeah. the danger of this one and and unless you try it unless you have an editor that is linked with Repel and then you go through the cycle of building programs using Repel it's it's extremely difficult to tell tell that okay you know yeah you know python has i python but it is not the same or yeah how how can i explain this to you it's very tricky and uh, because uh, yeah it also speaks to the fact that all the medium we use to communicate about code and design and programming they're, they're not really yeah. very live and not very yes. they're like they're very static things like code and stuff like exactly. that and uh yeah i think that's something that we should do we should do more like of uh, showing you how i do it you know and uh, mm, like yeah. we we should share a lot more and i, I think also really help beginners like uh, get started uh, with programming i remember when i was a beginner like uh, I was like but how was I supposed to figure all that stuff and there, mm-hmm. and and there's a lot of people saying that uh, it's very long and difficult to learn how to program I don't think it's it has to be that long I think that a lot of it is that uh, we have this like uh, it's like uh, at some point like uh, it's like oral tradition mostly actually it's like uh, yeah, you know exactly. how to do that yeah. stuff because you had one mentor in one job that told you <laughs> and you you were lucky at that point and and yeah, yeah. and along uh, several years you, you gather the piece of the puzzle uh, and at the end of the, the puzzle makes sense but it doesn't have to be like that like uh, sometimes <laughs> i'm thinking man if, if i if i could travel in time and and spend an hour with my past self uh, before <laughs> i started i could say okay you have oh, to yeah. learn that 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 and that and then uh, then uh, i would have progressed much faster like uh, the other thing that i like about what you were talking about there as well is that and it's definitely uh, uh something like the scales fell from my eyes with the repl was that other languages because of their lack of liveness they inhibit discovering things they inhibit they inhibit exploration you know yeah. and it's kind of like i don't know if you know of this Brett Victor guy who did all the kind of like yeah you know, yeah i'm a big the interaction the interaction yeah. should be linked to the yeah. the coding and we're not quite there with the repl yet but it's a much more live feeling like that i think with the yeah. repl than it is with traditional compiled languages where you have to wait for all of this you know did i get that line right this my semicolon right you know even with nice editors which are compiling as they go when you still run your program you're still kind of yeah well have i got the right data from the api Whereas in the REPL, you can just explore the API. You can just ask whether things are. Everything happens in like in fractions of a second. It doesn't happen in in tens of seconds or even multiples of seconds. Yeah. 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 And there's a, there's a time it takes to happen. There's no number of distractions like how many manipulations you have to make to to get back to the point where you were. And uh, mm. and uh, yeah, yeah. I think the the REPL really helps with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think people say thing. I think there is some things about like REPL driven development and REPL oriented development, but and I think the orientation is important. I think it's a tool like many others, you know, and you sometimes you use it more than than others. But but I think it should be always there. You know, it should always be there and handy for yeah. you. It should be a first class citizen. Yeah, and yeah. you must be like uh, disciplined to like you have to to keep your programs in a way that they will be accessible from the report. Yeah, that's part of your that's part of your guide, which I really liked. Which is maybe you can speak a little bit about that. Is like REPL designing for the REPL. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the like by default, you you can get your program in a way that uh, that won't be easily to like when you have to debug something you. It will become too difficult to reproduce the environment of your code and stuff like that to 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 manage the problem from the repo, and then you stop at some point. And, or yeah. like, uh, yeah, you have too too much context to recreate, or you can't do that, and uh, and it doesn't come naturally. Like it's not uh, it's not automatic. Yeah, you have to be vigilant of that all the time, and and it's not you because it's uh, it's like that with tests as well, like with uh, with mm -hmm. testing, like. Uh, you have to write your code in a way that uh, that can be tested, and uh, some people do do that to the extent they they do test driven development. Like the, we're gonna uh, we're going to write the test first so that uh, hmm. stuff is testable. And it's the same way. It's the same thing with the repo. Like you have to, yeah, you have to to think. And I mean, in real life, like when you see how cars are, are designed, like. There's a hood. There's a hood so that you can access the engine and every part of the engine because every part comes back in. You may have to make an intervention of almost every part. So, so almost every part is uh, made as accessible as possible, and it constrains a lot the design of cars. But, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it should be. But it's uh, it's a win, and it's, uh, it should be the same for uh, with uh, our programs. And I mean, I, I mean. Uh, well, I, I, that makes me think about what you said uh, with the uh, exploration, you know, because uh, I've been a few months ago, I've been doing a, a PHP project where uh, a lot of the work was figuring out the domain. Mm. Because it's, uh, it was some data processing, uh, and, um, and uh, I have to find out empirically what the invariants of the data were. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a, because the project had to be in PHP, I, I got it uh, from another guy who had started it but left the company i was like uh, okay i'm going gonna do it in php uh, as well but my the exploration the iterations i did for exploration was so slow because i didn't have the equivalent of a report mm, that yeah. at some point i decided to migrate the project to closure do it in Clojure <laughs> and then migrate it back to PHP. And that's what I did. I, it was faster that way. Like, uh, it was like, man. Uh, and, and I think there's one mainstream. Uh, I get, I get half of that story. I just don't get the second half. You know, it's like yeah. you converted well, it to Clojure. I, I, I actually, well, I, uh, I regretted it later. Like, I regretted <laughs> it. I told them, okay, we should, we should, we just shouldn't have done uh, that thing in PHP. I mean, like. Like even when all the company wants to do PHP and loves PHP, like don't do data processing stuff in PHP. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. Really, it's good for websites. It's yeah. like it's like you know, uh, yeah. 
like <laughs> it doesn't work well at all like it's like uh, i don't know it's like going uh in the snow in the mountain with uh with no shoes you know it's like oh, with, uh, <laughs> with the wrong shoes uh, i don't know it's like uh, <laughs> but speaking of speaking of repels uh so is it emacs or some other shit uh i use cursive i use cursive. Ah, ah, sorry yeah. to use that point and uh, <laughs> uh, i'm very guy. happy with cursive uh <laughs> i tried uh, i tried to use to adopt emacs six times i think and i failed each time <laughs> it's like and it, it really like it it hurts me you know it was like uh like Emacs hurts you. I, I hurts tried you. it myself like, 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 with no. the ability to learn several programming languages, and I have I had managed to change my programming paradigm with Kojo and stuff like that. But yeah, I couldn't change editors. Uh, I was like, <laughs> it was a humiliating experience. Really. But I think uh, I, I think the, the difference. Emacs is, is humiliating. Now that that's <laughs> got to be the uh, the headline of the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the, the you've got edits of shame. <laughs> I, I think uh, we humans. A good craftsman blames the tools. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what uh, I mean, like, uh, but well, I, I'm happy with cursive because I don't. Uh, I see the value in Emacs in the way that I I can be much more productive at editing code, but I don't yep. spend that much time editing code, so I yeah, yeah. I don't like I don't feel like that's a big gain to have. But it's interesting, I think, to to think like, why was it easy to change, relatively easy to change languages and change paradigms, learn, mm. learn new stuff, but not change editors? And it's because, like, I think as humans, we're good at um, at changing uh, the way we think about things that we can put describe in words, essentially in mm. natural language, yeah. and uh, yeah. the things that makes Emacs click. Uh, in my opinion, for many people, can't really be described in words. Like really, like uh, it's like every is the... person has their own handwriting, and there's no mm, words yeah. to to talk about that. I think that that makes that makes more sense. It, it's more or less like exp- explaining why REPL is better than non-REPL languages. Mm. Yeah, mm. it is. It is similar yeah, to that with Emacs as well. Challenge as well. Mm. Yeah, because you, you can't you can't explain. But that's but that, that's also true of comparing programming languages. Like a lot of language yes. debates you see in the, over the internet, they're like most of what you hear is said by people who only know one of the alternatives, who only know yes. one thing and not the other, and think they can compare, but actually they can't. And like when yeah. when people get into arguments with me, like. Uh, yeah, but you don't have the type system and stuff like that. I'm saying, no, I'm not going to that discussion. There's no part in having a, a theoretical discussion about that. You you want to assess if it's good, you have to try it. It's like... Uh, yeah, I think for for me, because I, I can I can uh, relate to both of them because I was a big Eclipse fan when it was released a long time ago and I built Eclipse RCP programs and then I switched to IntelliJ and then I was a very big fan of IntelliJ, uh, all the shortcuts and everything. And uh, I, I really like the way it is for the Java programs. Uh, but I made, but Emacs has been, you know, the, one of the things that I kept using. And then now pretty much practically I use Emacs for everything these days. For me, the comparison is like, you know, going to McDonald's or, or, you know, getting a microwave dinner versus coming home and then cooking stuff yourself. Yeah. So it's, it's really difficult. There is, there is a really good food available outside. You can go and get it. And then that's good for that menu, whatever. That's, that's nice. Mm. But then when you come back home. 
when you're when you cook every day or when you're cooking you know a lot of times then you don't have a recipe in your mind you see the ingredients and then you make something that you like yeah so emacs is more something like that yeah and by the way i'm really bad at that like uh, <laughs> i can't cook without a recipe really. it's like uh, well, but we, we start at some point right I, so I that's just the idea cul- culinary initiative no i can't do that it's like, yeah. <laughs> But for me, that is the difference. I think it, oh, that's it, interesting. conceptually, it is it is fairly similar because you you come to the editor and then essentially it doesn't provide you anything. It, it has some things there, and then it gives you a lot of flexibility. It gives you a lot of uh, tools mm. available that you can and 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 the 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 similarity that you said, like like handwriting. You know, mm. everybody's Emacs is different because they they customized it into their own recipe. Is yeah. this an Emacs and that's show why, now? By the way, what's going on? Yeah. Sorry, is this an Emacs show now? What's going on? Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, we had enough Emacs last week, mate. Come on. Inevitably, <laughs> inevitably, every show becomes an Emacs show. It's it's <laughs> like you know, every every language is a you know crappy implementation yeah. of Lisp. Every editor is a crappy implementation of Emacs. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like don't don't, don't take point. it too personally. Let's let's move on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it it is it is personal, <laughs> of course. What do you mean by too personal? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe okay. We'll do some therapy afterwards. Okay, <laughs> let's get back to closure. <laughs> so, just, just. I mean, I would like to go back to <laughs> to the Repel experience, actually, uh, Valentine, because one of the things that that like I notice in my work is that interoperating with things like JavaScript and Java, um, those are the things which tend, I find, tend to kind of like hold back the Repel enness that you know your ability to maintain like a REPL discipline, because as soon as you have to like interact with Java systems, often it's compiling things or it's like, I don't know, the uh, there is a kind of runtime necessary for it, which is awkward and, and, and different. And you have to set state outside of, you know, there's all kinds of state going on. I mean, JavaScript is a great one for this. There's all kinds of state being set at a global level at different scopes. So you, you try to interact with their APIs and you're not quite sure what's going on. So do you have that experience or is it mostly you just mostly do pure closure these days? Yeah, I've been mostly doing pure closure, so I don't have that experience much. Although I, I do feel that when something is uh, immutable, it really helps with the REPL. And uh, mm-hmm. when it's immutable, it hinders it because like... Uh, the, the repo is good for exploratory work, so you're going to make mistakes. And like uh, when you get into a bad state, you should be able to discard it, basically. Mm. And mm. when things are mutable, you can't. Like uh, you get into a bad state, you, you're stuck with it. So, uh, so I think, yeah, I, I do think that mutability hinders the, the repo a bit. Uh, about the, the run times, uh, like you said, uh, I haven't experienced that personally. But I think it speaks again to, to the fact that uh, um, you must design programs to be repo friendly. And, uh, and of course, uh, that's not the case when it comes from a language that doesn't have a repo, doesn't have like, a, well, it's not idiomatic to be using one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I often feel like that's a good motivation to me to actually wrap a, a Java or a Clojure or, or a JavaScript library is to make it REPL friendly because then I can yeah. hide the mutations that are going underneath and just make my calls into it in a in a more elegant, normal way that yeah, is more functional. Because just just putting an API for no reason doesn't make any sense. You know, it's just a, no. just making yeah. it 
idiomatic is bullshit, I think. Mm. But if it's but if you if the underlying thing is muted, uh, mutating things, and you can somehow abstract away from that, then that seems like it's a good rapple thing to do. Anyway, you're not hitting that problem, so we'll move on. <laughs> Back to Emacs, VJ. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> yeah, I know. See, eventually. <laughs> Eventually, you'll see the light. But, um, oh, oh uh, so Valentin, uh, Valentin, I think. I don't know. Oh, good. So, what is your, uh, what is your future uh, um, plan? I mean, what are you going to work on? Because I can see you, so, uh, of, of course, you know, we, we blocked you from going to your vacation. We know that. Yeah, yeah. I'll be on vacation <laughs> for a few months. I start work again on uh, October, but my plan is to keep some uh, a lot of free time to uh, to study things that interest me in particular mathematics but could be other things and also to do open source development and uh, the next pro open source project in Clojure that i want to release is um, an execution engine for uh, graphql and similar languages uh, mm. i don't know mm. if you're familiar with uh, graphql yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, how yeah. about it? We've, so we've been using maybe for the it. listeners, uh, GraphQL is a data ex is a query language for exchanging data between clients and servers, where you, yeah. you give more power to the client to say what data you want. So you're not like uh, you're not saying I want the customer resource or I want the order resource stuff like that. You're saying I want that customers. That customer and of that customer, I want to know the first name, the next name, the email, and uh, her yeah. orders. And in each order, I want to know like the amount and the, uh, the ID, the SKU. I don't know. And uh, yeah. it's very similar to um, to Datomic Pool, and uh, mm -hmm. it's also very similar for those who know it. And it's also very similar to uh, Omnext. Uh, Omnext also has a query language like that uh, uh, with yeah. a system of parsers, and it's all the same ID. And um, yeah. and so the the motivation for the library is that uh, it's very nice on the client side, like uh, making that happen on the client side is always a good story. But it's much mm -hmm. more challenging on the server side because you're quickly exposed to stuff like the n plus one query problem and uh, stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, and so the the goals of the library are first to prevent that from happening because like. Uh, it's a, the instinctive and naive way to the instinctive and naive API for registering uh, uh, server-side logic for creating a, an engine like that is to uh, is to like uh, say that each attribute is computed each field as uh, they're called in GraphQL is computed yeah. by by one function. And to say the function accepts like uh, one entity and one uh, one field and uh, the arguments for that uh, field and uh, returns uh, a value, but you, you can see how it creates the n plus one query problem. And so the mm -hmm. approach of the library that I want to to release, which is called uh, D2Q, is to mm -hmm. uh, to say by default we're not computing one uh, one attribute of one entity. We're computing like the uh, several attributes of several entities and to like we, we're computing a table basically like the you okay. receive like a, a set of rows and a set of columns representing uh, entities and fields and you have to return mm -hmm. a potentially sparse uh, set of uh, values and um, and that's how the library works and once you do that 
you essentially remove the N plus one query problem and you gain more flexibility for computing uh, fields derived from uh, other fields. And the other thing is, is to make uh, an execution engine that can work with GraphQL and with Omnext and with Datomic Pool and stuff like that, that accepts all of these inputs, like a bit like the, a bit like JVM bytecode, you know, like, okay. uh, like I'm giving you a runtime from that and you can make as many front-ends, compiler front-ends you want for that. And, uh, and so, okay. so that's the idea basically too. Because I think that's for projects adopting that uh, architecture, these are the challenging parts. And so uh, mm -hmm. the idea of the library is to say, okay, we, we have a, a good foundation for these challenging parts and for the details of how the, the synth text level details essentially uh, you choose uh, your own solution essentially what what do you um one of the one of the things that people object to to some extent about graphql is the um the security model around it so do you have some thoughts on that or is that still i think left to the implementations uh, it's still left to the implementation because there's uh, security authorization logic tends to be way too application specific to be uh, encoded in the library, in my opinion. But I think it quickly becomes a, a, a performance problem, actually. It's like uh, you have to, uh, the, well, the, the, so, so the idea of the library is to do batching, the logic, uh, computation logic in a batching, mm -hmm. uh, in batches. And uh, when you do that, it also helps with security, actually. It's uh, like, uh, because the, the downside of uh, putting your security logic uh, close to your data computation logic is that uh, it often it exposes you to a lot of uh, denial denial of service attacks and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and uh, and so uh, when you 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 give more uh, well you have more foolproof way when you do computations in batching uh, to prevent that, and the other thing is that uh, GraphQL made the mistake in my opinion to to offer a text-based query API, like SQL did. Mm. And the thing is, is that uh, it's an intuitive medium for humans, but it's a very bad uh, substrate for programming. It's like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you can't yeah. build stuff on top of that, because even if you make an AST for, for that, it's going to be an implementation detail. It's not going to be standard mm. and stuff like that. But when you have your queries represented as data structures, you can do a lot of static validation and stuff like that to to uh, enforce uh, application specific security rules mm. among mm. other things and mm. also caching logic and also mm. Uh, mm. all kinds of stuff so nice yeah cool well, so and that's one of the other objectives of the library is to have like a, a data oriented format for right for yeah. okay cool so you're going to take a nice vacation and then come back with a lot of new ideas to implement all this stuff. Yeah, well, it's, it's already implemented, actually. That's, uh, we oh, no. we okay. used that uh, in, uh, in, the, in the company I just left. And uh, now okay. I just have to make it like... Uh, Open source. Yeah, and uh, make to nice. make it like to... Yeah, to make it more general and uh, like uh, documented and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yeah, but most of the, the work is done. Um, okay. What what remains to be done is to really make also. I want to make a proof of concept of uh, an adapter between GraphQL and that, 
because we, we don't really use GraphQL at my company when we use the, an ad hoc thing. Like, yeah. uh, so, yeah. so you're going to make it nice and REPL friendly as well? Yeah, sure. <laughs> as always. <laughs> good to hear, good to hear. As always. I mean, it's meant okay. to be used idiomatically from Clojure with immutable data structures and stuff like that. And so it's, it's not, it will be naturally report friendly, I think. Well, one of the things that, uh, and, I, and again, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about this, is that um, that because I've started to write a REPL, as you know, um, this like shared user REPL, multi-user yeah. REPL. Um, one of the things that I sort of was impressed by that they're doing in the core now is this... Um, automatic ability within the REPL to load up a library at runtime and to, it changes your class path and all those kind of things, which is, you know, really, really nice. I think it makes the REPL even more powerful, you know. Um, I'm wondering whether you've done any of that yet or, um, you know, it, it only really works with uh, with projects that support depths.eden and all these kind of things, but, but you yeah, know. Yeah, so, yeah, as I was using Lining, line engine based projects i haven't had the occasion to do that but yeah it was a it it did uh, feel painful on the other hand uh, i mean i restart the repl a few times a day uh, hmm. usually just when i'm switching git branches essentially like uh, when too much of my project code changes uh, i usually feel like i should restart the repl so you know, I'm fine yeah. doing it when I add a dependency too, because uh, I don't add a dependency that often. But mm. uh, but yeah, I'm speaking about something that I don't really know. Maybe uh, maybe that's something I need, but I don't know that I need it yet. So. Again, I think it's one of these things which, if you can do it, uh, it feels really nice, you know, and then you don't have yeah. to change things. And, and you can change Git dependencies on the fly as well, by the way. It's not just um, oh, libraries. Nice. So, yeah, you can uh, even the thing I've, because that's what depths.eden supports. It supports local files, um, Git, Git tags, Git shards, Git yeah. coordinates, and also Linegan coordinates as well. Um, but I think yeah. the, 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 add, the yeah. tools, the ad lib stuff only does the uh, depths.eden for the moment. But yeah, 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 but it's but it's really nice, you know. To be able to do it is is a really nice feeling, you know. And and the new the the whole new dependency management story with Clojure mm. with the tools depths and stuff like that, it's really nice. And uh, I don't think it exists in other languages much actually. And uh, and that's one like I mean when you see what they're doing with Datomic Ions, like uh, mm. it's all based on uh, tools depths, and uh, mm. it enables a lot of cool stuff like that when you. You hot deploy your code on a, on a machine that's already mounted. They change the dependencies on the fly and stuff like that. Mm. It's really, mm. it's really good actually. Yeah, mm. I think it's it shows to some extent the value as well of like fully understanding the, the host platform because yeah, really all you need to do is change the class path, and so it shows the flexibility of Java and the Java Virtual Machine to some extent as well. But anyway, that's a that's a different subject. But you know, yeah, I think uh, having having the this dependency stuff right in the closure core, um, you know, it's still not. I, I I feel like the people out there aren't really doing it much yet. They again, you like you say, they're kind of like, well, I've used Linegan, and why should I bother? But actually, there's just a small point here. But there is a a, a tool called um, Line Tools Depths, 
and it's a little project. And what you can do with that project is you can take your current Linegan project and just replace your dependencies into depths.eden. And then you can still have all your Linegan plugins and all those things and cursive can still work. But you can start to use the depths.eden and you can start to use the git shards and you can start to use all those innovations right now, you know, even if you still want to play with the Linegan world. Yeah, and, and uh, I've been starting new projects in Clojure recently and uh, and I use tools that I use depths.eden uh, projects by by default now. Mm, yeah. If I can, if you can do that, it's good, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and there's a, a project called uh, Juxt Edge that mm. uh, gives yeah. you that that by default and uh, yeah. and uh, and I think it's good. It's a uh, it's a good way to to start a Clojure project. Well, there's, there's a party starting in my house right now, so I'm going to have to leave you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you got a on that bombshell. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's conclude then. Uh, just a couple of just just couple of different things. Uh, I think a couple of other things. Uh, Closure D uh, has been announced already, and then uh, I think the call for proposals are open. It's a fantastic conference. We were there last year. Yeah, yeah really good. Uh, it's an amazing uh, thing. Um, and also, I think there is a new conference that is getting started in Belgium, Heart of Closure, yeah. uh, by Arne as well. Yeah. So hopefully, I think uh, that will pick up the steam as well. Uh, we haven't started, at least I haven't started the uh, thinking about um, DCD yet, Dutch Closure Day. Uh, and there is Closure Tray still happening this year in uh, September, November, and, some, somewhere around. Closure X in London I think so. in December. Yeah, closure X in London in December. So there are still steam of uh, things going on, lots of things going on. Um, so will we see you, Valentin, at one of these places? Uh, I don't know. Maybe at closure X. Maybe. But uh, I, I wanted to go to closure Tray, but uh, I won't be able uh, to. Well, it will be in September, so I'd probably be yeah, yeah. climbing on some Busy. cliff uh, <laughs> yeah. in the south of France at that time. But so, so I don't want to okay. make any plans in September. But, um, yeah. No worries. Anyway, hey, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time uh, right before your vacation. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. Good luck with climbing and hammocking and uh, thinking <laughs> about all this stuff and graph theory. And uh, we'll be waiting for your uh, next uh, release of the open source of the fancy GraphQL engine stuff. Brilliant. Uh, so that that's it from us uh, for this episode, I think. Thanks again, uh, Valentin. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a real pleasure, Valentin. You're a star. Good work. And I love, I love, I love running underwater. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> now, now we can all go back and then start running underwater. Or use closure and then just keep floating around. Exactly. And sail. Freestyle. Freestyle. <laughs> okay. Have a nice uh, evening. And um, yeah. Bye bye. Yeah, you think? too. See you around. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to live load myself. <laughs>